Hello, beautiful humans, and welcome to the Bitcoin Stoa. For any first-time listeners here today, Bitcoin Stoa is a community-funded platform. So if you enjoy listening, you can support the project by sending some sats to the QR code at the homepage uh, at bitcoinstoa.com. And you can also stream sats using the Breeze app. They have a pretty good podcast feature. Uh, current Moscow time is 1637 at 707-265. And with that said, it is my honor to welcome Ethan Liu, who has kindly donated his time this morning. Ethan, welcome to the Stoa. Hey, hey. Hi, Nick. Thank you for having me. No worries, man. So the Stoa is primar- primarily, I can't talk today, but that. the Stoa is primarily a platform to tell stories. So it's a real treat um, to have a professional storyteller on the show. And Ethan is the author of a book called Once a Bitcoin Miner which I must say is a pretty addictive read. I was sent uh, a PDF copy at the start of this week and I'm like 50% through it. And uh, I, I just want to keep reading. Like a lot of the characters, you just want to find out what happens to all these characters. So oh, thank be- you. before we talk about the book, maybe let's start with you um, telling us a little bit about yourself, your work and how you initially discovered Bitcoin. Hmm. So I write a column in this Canadian newspaper called the Financial Post. And before that, I wrote for Reuters. And before that, I was a Bitcoiner. I, uh, 2013, that was when I first got exposure to it. And uh, toward the end of the year, that was when I first invested. And uh, yeah, it's been a crazy journey so far. If you think back to the days of 2013 and where the space is now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was a wild, wild west back then. And it was something... You know, it's something very different now. You see all the big players getting into the space, how it's developed in terms of, you know, lightning. And, you know, my mom owns Bitcoin now. This is like a, a different planet um, uh-huh. compared to where we were before. And um, how did you get into it? So you said 2013. How did it, how did Bitcoin find you? I, I used to ask people, how did you find Bitcoin? But it seems like Bitcoin finds people. So how did that happen um, in, in your experience? Yeah, that's a great question because I think everyone has different stories like that and for me 2013 i was my friends and i basically we were on the dark web just for just no good reason and that was my first time on the dark web and that was when i saw that everyone were they were transacting in bitcoin that was when i first heard of the name bitcoin but it takes a while it i didn't like put in my money immediately and it took like almost a whole year toward the end of 2013 and between that, I had a conversation I, uh, with Anthony Diorio, who went on to co-found Ethereum. And it was partly because of that, partly because I first heard of a Bitcoin on the dark web and just slowly, incrementally, I ended up investing uh, end of 2013. Okay, nice. Yeah, it seems like most people have sort of a sequence of touch points where they hear about Bitcoin, they shrug it off. Uh, they have another interaction with Bitcoin. Someone brings it up or someone they know got into it. And at a certain point, it wears you down to the point where it's like, okay, well, maybe I should just learn about this thing and see if there's something to it. I know that was my case. I was a physical therapist um, and I had a patient that every time he came in, he would just would keep mentioning Bitcoin and he would be like, you know, get some Bitcoin. This is a good time. This is a really important thing. And I kind of was just like, ah, it sounds like nerd money. I have no interest. And eventually I broke down and I was like, all right, I'll buy one Bitcoin so that I can actually hold a conversation with this guy uh, when he comes in for treatments. And that was the, the portal to the rabbit hole for me, which was a very, like, I wasn't going down the ladder super quick at the start, but I, every time I learned a little tidbit, I was like, oh, there's something else I don't understand. So I'll learn that. And um, interesting. And so Reuters, uh, Financial Times, so you have a journalism background, I believe, right? Yes. So 
maybe this is like, like, what does journalism mean to you? So, you know, the, I find uh, the etymology of words very curious and I was trying to look them up and, uh, you know, journalism is taken from the French word journal, which comes from the Latin diurnal or daily and sort of has taken this thing as like a daily thing that gets put out there, you know, a, the, the production of a report um, of events that are supported by evidence. And I personally feel, and I, I, I would like to be proven wrong, that along with the digital transition and sort of the dematerialization of printed material uh, and sort of the expansion of the social world where now we're like, it's all about stealing people's attention. I feel like journalism has, uh, based on my perception, taken sort of like rigorous journalism seems to have died in favor of clickbait, um, quick jabs to try and take people's attention. What is your, what does being a journalist mean to you? And what's your take on the sort of loss of rigor and, um, you know, like true, uh, trust, trustworthy journalism. Cause I feel that's died, but I'd love to hear your take. So I, I used to, uh, uh, in my student days, I was the managing editor of my university paper, the Ryersonian. And, uh, I think to be fair, we had a rival paper. There were two newspapers in the university and the other one was much better than us. And they had this story about toilet paper. So apparently the university president in his washroom, he had better toilet paper than everyone else in the school. Like he had two ply, everyone used one ply and they exposed that. And that is what journalism means to me. It's exposing these uh, inequities in society. And they ended up uh, doing away with two ply for the president. I think he ended up getting one ply like the rest of us. Um, but I, I think these days, I, I wouldn't say that uh, the, the rigor of journalism is lost. I, I would say that journalism, it's becoming uh, a much bigger field and a lot more people are, are joining in because the, the barriers to entry, they are getting lower. So, mm. you know, you, you use, it used to be that newspapers were very powerful. If you, uh, if you write in a newspaper, if you, yeah, you, you're a big deal. But now there are many more ways to reach people like you. Uh, you, have a, you have a YouTube channel. And I would say you are now a journalist as well. And so more and more people are entering this field. And so different types of content, they are evolving. And I think the original, the, the type that you would just describe as rigorous and you know exposing inequality, it's still there, but it's being drowned out by just everyone else entering. That's a really good point. And that is kind of how, you know, I view the Stoa as an audio, um, it's an audio based medium, but it does, it is like what I call proof of work journalism, where someone is asking questions to someone else in real time. And they're both seeking out the best answer that reflects, um, you know, the understanding that they each have, and they're trying to determine the synthesis of truth. So yeah, you're right. And when I think about it, it's like, when I say journalism, I, I think I, I thought of new, like, um, official newspapers as journalism. And I didn't so much think of like the 10 people I follow on medium who I love reading their stuff as journalism, but that you're right. That's kind of what it is. It's just sort of uh, scrambled into all the different mediums. And so it doesn't look so much like traditional journalism, but that's really what it is, right? Like you're finding people who you trust because they've done the work and show their proof of work in that this is the research I've done, read these articles. And I think people in the Bitcoin community are very good at that, right? This whole thing of trust, um, don't trust verify, uh, I think is 
resonates a lot because a lot of smart people put all the resources and they just kind of give their take, but they also say like, read the resources, right? Don't believe me, read the resources. I think that's very powerful. Um, and I, th I don't know, there's this weird thing where the censorship happening now is really distorting, I think, our perception of truth. And so, you know, part of me feels that Bitcoin can sort of overcome censorship by allowing people to go off these big tech platforms. And you have all these other social media platforms forming like Zion and all these, all these small projects that I hope blossom into something good where it's decentralized and there's no choke point and we get rid of, cause like, what's your take on censorship? I think it's like the big, one of the biggest problems we have because it, it essentially kills our ability for collective sense-making, right? Like if I have a totally different data set than my brother and we're arguing about something, um, then it's really hard to find common ground if we have completely different data sets and those data sets might have been purposely manipulated to give us a certain perspective. So what's your, what's your take on what's your hot take on censorship? Oh, I, uh, I think doing what I do, I'm a big believer in freedom of speech. And there was one time when I was interviewing Justin Timberlake and his rep said, I could not ask any questions about Britney. And that left a very sour taste in my mouth. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I, and now like I would, I generally would not, if I were to interview someone, I would not go into any interviews where the question, the, the rep says like, you can't ask this, you can't ask that, or, right. you, you know, uh, at the most, uh, even if you go into such interviews, you would have to disclose that, say, uh, you would write that the rep said, you cannot ask this, but I asked it anyway. So, um, and I think it's going to become uh, increasingly uh, a problem. And as you mentioned, the, the growth of big tech and yesterday's announcement, Facebook is becoming meta. And these platforms, they are increasingly going to control our speech. Yeah. I mean, the optimistic part of me feels like the more these giant tech platforms and governments who are kind of like prodding the tech platforms to do their biddings uh, enforce censorship, it's almost like the world will have a natural immune reaction to that. And they're, what they think is improving the ability to control the narrative is actually um, fast tracking this, this, the evolution and the spawning of all these platforms that they are, will be unable to censor. And so it's just funny how maybe that's just my, uh, optimistic, um, utopian view, but I, I think we're gonna, I think this problem, the bigger this problem becomes, the more incentive there is for people to build and create things that are uncensorable, not because they're choosing not to censor because the platforms are built to not enable permission to censor. I think that's a really important thing, this notion of unstoppable code where there is no choke point um, purposely. And, you know, I, I, even something like free speech in Canada, like it, it alarms me how our free, our, our right to free speech uh, really is kind of getting eroded over time. Uh, does that concern you at all as a, cause you're in Toronto, I believe, right? Mm -hmm. Is that of concern to you? Uh, well, uh, when I look at this issue, I tend to look at places where free speech is even more repressed. And I, I, I'm, I'm actually more concerned about what is happening in China, for example, and mm. where I, so I, I was born there and I have a family friend and he, he lives in Germany. I was talking to him this one time and he said, uh, uh, do, do you have any Chinese friends? And I was like, of course, but he, he said, I mean, friends actually from China who grew up there. And I thought about it and yeah, I actually don't know anyone who, uh, who 
I, I, I don't socialize on a great deal with someone who actually grew up there. And he said, don't hang out with those people. As he said, they, they grow up in a, they view the sort of censored media their whole lives. It warps their worldview. Uh, someone growing up there, they would not know that the Tiananmen incident, the Tiananmen Square incident happened. And they think the Western media is uh, biased against China. They think that there are no concentration camps in Xinjiang. And yeah, and I think uh, things here are bad, but over there, it's so much worse. That's a really good answer because there's always, you know, no matter what struggle you have, there's someone struggling more. Um, I think I often compare Canada to the United States and look at them and see like, they actually have a, they have a respect for free speech that we, I think, don't in Canada, but you're right. Free speech isn't even like a term that's probably allowed to be said in China. Um, and I find it very interesting that when someone grows up in this um, artificial environment, like they're growing up in a, almost like a fish tank where the outside world is not known to them. And they don't even realize that the manufactured manipulated world they're growing up in is not, a, is not actually reality, that it's actually curated. And yeah, I'm sure that does very much warp your view of the world and it doesn't even put the temptation to do things that you've been uh, essentially programmed to think you're not allowed to do. It doesn't even allow them the opportunity that those things are possible. Right. And I, uh, yeah, who knows what's happening in China? Like it's really hard to find truth. I went to China about probably four or five years ago now, and I found it very, a very strange atmosphere. Like I would just felt um, it felt odd being there. And I went to Beijing and Shanghai and I, it was so cool to see all the culture and the architecture, but it had this weird air about it. And um, yeah, I don't know what's going to happen there, but I hope Canada doesn't lean towards that side because um, it seems like we're kind of doing that in some respects. Um, in terms of the book, so once a Bitcoin miner, I would love to hear what made you want to write a book, uh, that one specifically. And then I'd love to talk to you about your writing process before we get into some of the stuff that I, I, I have questions about from the book. So why did you write the book? Um, what made you want to do that? And what was sort of the um, intention with writing it and getting it out into the world? So the, the idea for the book first came to me in 2014. So it's been a long time coming, but okay. I didn't really do any, make any concrete steps to try to pursue the book back then. But I think it was only... 2018 when I actually started, but I had always thought that uh, there are lots of books on Bitcoin and crypto and lots of people, they try to look at it, I think, purely from a, a monetary policy or a, or, a, or a computer science perspective. But I through this book, I try to look at it from this human condition perspective. And at its heart, it's a narrative nonfiction. It's a, it's a series of stories driven by plot and characters. And I feel that's a uh, you know, that that's a different way to look at this. And to me, a, a much more interesting way. Definitely. And uh, the whole notion of it being more of a storyteller's perspective, like I actually started to build curiosity of these different characters that you kind of mosey through. And it, you're right, it is a very different take on Bitcoin. And I think it shows a side of Bitcoin people don't typically uh, get to see. And, you know, maybe that's from a time's past where it's no longer like that. I, I don't know, but uh, I really enjoyed the writing style. And when you said in 2014, what made you think in 2014, I should write a book about this? Uh -huh. um, I don't know. I, I, I think it, it might have, uh, it's like how I ended up investing in Bitcoin. I first heard about 
this thing on the dark web and incrementally uh, my enthusiasm for it grew until toward the end of the year, I decided to, to put money into it. And I think similarly, 2014, I don't think I felt it on a high degree. It wasn't like a 10, I want to write a book. Maybe maybe like a two or a three, perhaps I can write a book. And mm-hmm. I really didn't do anything. But um, throughout the years, the enthusiasm for it, it just built up. Yeah, and it seems like you were thrust into a lifestyle that is just like, you were like, how did I get here? This is kind of cool. This is kind of crazy. Um, and it almost, you know, I can, I can kind of take your perspective as you write the book where it's like almost surreal, right? It's like, how did I end up here? How is this, how am I in like, you know, Asia at a crazy, crazy mansion that hosts parties for crypto? It's like, it sounds, it's, it's like a roller coaster adventure that um, seems almost uh, like fantasy for a lot of people, but I don't think a lot of people realize that that shit is actually real, probably still is and definitely was in the past when you have these people that, you know, maybe got an inside edge on this Bitcoin thing early on and then turned into millionaires within the course of like a short, short period of time. And it's, uh, it's pretty crazy. And now I'm always curious about people's writing process. So, you know, like how long you said you started thinking of it in 2014. So I assume that you started taking notes to kind of pull up material. Um, but in terms of your actual writing process, you know, like when do you write how do how do you like to write? What environment do you like? Like, give us give us as many details as you can about your writing process because I'm always very curious for um, to ask authors this because everyone is so different and unique, and I hope to pick up little gems if I ever uh, decide to write something myself. So I I didn't really make any notes in 2014. So I think it was only 2018 when I actually started to uh, make make concrete steps to to pursue this idea. And so I would separate the writing process into, into two, two chunks. So one is the, the research process and the reporting. So uh, I would have to gather information and the other part is actually writing. And I, I think usually people enjoy one over the other and I would enjoy writing more than research. Definitely, I feel when I write, I, I almost get into a state of flow and I, I can like sit down and just pound away for hours and, you know, day can turn into night and maybe I wouldn't notice. And it's actually quite an enjoyable process. I, I don't have any secrets, but uh, so a nonfiction book, it's sold on a, on a proposal as opposed to fiction. Fiction, you have to write the whole thing. So nonfiction, you, you outline it. And so... Basically, I, so when I sat down to write, I, I already had the outline. So, so it kind of flowed by itself. Gotcha. And then in your typical, how long would a typical writing period be? And do you do it, um, do you prefer by hand on a computer, an air-gapped computer? Like, is there any um, ritual that you have around the writing process when you do sit down to write? And is it at a certain time or do you specifically just kind of do it whenever the muse beckons? Mm-hmm. So I, I actually schedule my time. So I, uh, when writing this book, I, I followed like a weird uh, Saturday to, to Wednesday work week. So cool. I think Saturday and Sunday, uh, usually I think I wouldn't have any emails to answer. So the whole two days, I can probably spend it pounding away on the book, but uh, I, I don't use an air gap computer. It's just my normal computer. Okay. And I think also I... Uh, I would, 
I, tr I think the best practice actually, it, the most efficient is to write everything and then come back and edit. But I don't follow that very well. And I, I think perhaps this is like a, a weakness. I, I edit as I write. And I think sometimes that's time consuming. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, you call it a weakness, but you wrote a good book. I think clearly what works for you might not work for others, but like clearly it did the trick because you finished the book, <laughs> which is a <laughs> massive monumental accomplishment. I mean, you know, if anyone's even written an essay in school, you understand how powerful the force of procrastination can be and the resistance. Um, and yeah, I want to talk about some things uh, that I kind of plugged out of the book that I really liked. Um, one was, how is the feeling of vindication when you saw that the gift you gave your parents, um, vision tuppled, if that's even a word, <laughs> um, you know, like I think a lot of people are go through these ebbs and flows of feeling vindicated and then feeling everything collapse. And, um, you know, like how did your parents react when they witnessed firsthand how much this little, probably insignificant thing ended up being like, would there, did they talk about that at all? Or were they just like, okay, this seems fake or this seems crazy. How was, how was the reaction when they actually saw that? Well, I, I don't think we talked about it that much, but uh, they, they clearly uh, understood everything. And I think you, you, you would pay more attention to something when you have skin in the game, yeah. as opposed to just observing it from afar. And they were, because I made them have skin in the game. I gave them Bitcoin. Yeah. They, uh, I, I, I was able to educate them on, on this, I think, more quickly than perhaps uh, other people in their generation. And the vindication, like, uh, it definitely felt good. But I have to be honest, I wasn't even 100% sure at the time if that vindication would come. Mm. Because 2000 and, uh, yeah, 2013 to 2017, that was, uh, that was a drastic different period i think that boom was different from this boom yeah i think they're all different i mean it you know bitcoin is this organism that's constantly evolving and there's like a whole different environmental set of variables that surround it at each phase of its history and um yeah i think i think trying to base future projections based on based on the history is is kind of a flawed uh model when it comes to bitcoin sure there might be patterns that repeat but they're not going to repeat one-to-one -one, and the repeating uh, is never guaranteed. And, um, you know, it seems it, it's such a crazy world. You see the president of a country buying 420 Bitcoins on the dip and announcing that on Twitter. And it's like, what the fuck? This is reality. This is crazy. I mean, it's good crazy, but it's also still kind of crazy when you see stuff like that. Um, one thing I really liked that you wrote was this mental shift of viewing real estate as this coveted asset that people seek to acquire uh, to being uh, sort of like a ball and chain and an inferior form of property to own. Can you talk a little bit about um, how that shift happened with you and sort of like what basis you were, you were using to justify that? Cause I, cause I have the same, I've had the same shift very recently, probably within the last year. And it's hard to get this across to people who have lived by the, the, you know, the sort of real estate their entire life. And have never actually seen, especially people like I'm born in 88. So people my age have never really lived through or experienced some sort of real estate correction, right? The notion is real estate is a good investment. It always goes up. It went up 30% this year. I'm doing awesome. But they don't really realize that like most of that appreciation is currency depreciation. 
and it's not guaranteed to go forever. So when did that mindset shift of real estate go from being something that's awesome and I want to something that I actually don't want because it uh, limits my realm of possibilities in terms of my life? I think one factor in that was uh, all the paperwork in buying a house because 2018 to 2017, toward the end of that, I was thinking, yeah, but perhaps I should buy a house. And I have uh, really smart people were telling me to buy a house, but uh, I, I was doing a lot of things at the time. And this, the whole paperwork with it, uh, it was just, it, 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 it was a lot. And I, at the same time, I was in, I was in Calgary and I was thinking, well, would I end up staying in Calgary? What, what happens if I leave? Do I have to deal with all this paperwork again? Do I, do I rent it out? Do I, you know, hire someone to manage it or do I, do I borrow against it? That's, and it's, it's just not very liquid. And at the same time, you, uh, you hear what these, uh, crypto big shots are doing, uh, CZ of Binance. He doesn't have a house. He, uh, on record, you're he saying he, he only owns crypto. He doesn't have anything else. And uh, the guy who, uh, Meta Coven, the guy who bought the 70 million NFT, he doesn't own anything except for, except for his like electronics and, uh, and crypto as well. So, yeah. you know, if they can do it, why not me? Yeah, the friction in real estate um, and sort of the rent-seeking uh, economy that's built around it, you know, like lawyers, accountants, uh, like all there's so much bullshit associated with it. And also the maintenance costs of real estate, you know, like the tax, um, the, the upkeep, like all that kind of stuff. You don't, if you view Bitcoin as property, Bitcoin doesn't have any of that friction, right? Like the, the rent seeking friction is like, you only have to deal with the spread of an exchange. That's the only like friction and just like clicking a button. Do you ever see acquiring property as being uh, as being something that is settled on on, for example, the base layer of Bitcoin and becomes as easy as buying Bitcoin? Do you think that'll ever happen? That transition will ever be something we see in our lifetimes? Because I'm I'm optimistic that it eventually will. I don't know what time horizon it is, and surely the government will give a lot of friction to not knowing every single detail about what's happening. But in terms of like a ledger, we have the world's most reliable decentralized ledger, why not add big purchases to that? Um, so do you think that'll ever be be something? Well, uh, I, I would say that in Canada, when they tried to make the vaccine passport, they couldn't even get different provinces to, uh, like the federal mm-hmm. government doesn't have the, the province's medical records. So I think if you want to move everyone onto, onto one ledger, it, it might take a while maybe yeah. toward the end of our lifetimes, but I want to see that day, definitely. Yeah, and I mean, I trust that the people building in Bitcoin will be way better at it than any government could ever be. Uh, and my hope is that by then, the government will actually be a, a much, uh, you know, like I have this romantic relationship with the sovereign individual in that, like, I really hope that's the kind of world we live in. Uh, and I hope that governments are viewed as entities which, um are trying to appease customers to bring them to their country by being favorable in terms of how they do things. Um, I don't know if we'll ever get there. Obviously power will do everything it can to maintain in power. I think we're seeing a lot of that now. Um, another thing I really liked from your book was this notion of not upgrading your lifestyle, uh, despite your wealth increasing dramatically. And, you know, like you, you use the, the, um, the line still using your calculator, application at the grocery store to get the most grams per dollar for cheese. And I think it's so funny how some of the people I know in Bitcoin 
because I'm a I've I, somehow I avoided all of the crypto phase of this like journey. Like I got into it in around 2015, um, and I avoided all the crypto stuff because I, I seriously didn't have the bandwidth to learn anything else. I was like, I got to learn this deeply in order to feel comfortable putting my money into it. And some of the people I know, um, it seems to be like this thing with Bitcoiners. It seems to like attract the kind of people who aren't so much and surely there are people like that but the people i know have sort of pegged the lifestyle that they they kind of like and they're really strong on their values such that they're they're still like very frugal with their money despite being very wealthy and so uh was that something that you know an attitude that came up when you were growing up like in your family or was that something that you just held like why did you choose not to upgrade your lifestyle despite your wealth um increasing what was sort of the what, what caused that? Where did that come from? Yeah, I think it's a factor of many things because uh, I, I, I did grow up in, uh, in the, the 1990s in, in Germany, uh, a little after the Berlin Wall fell. And, uh, you know, my, my father was a graduate student at the time. And uh, when I use that term, he, he would remind me that he was a doctoral candidate, not a simple graduate student, but uh, still was not making a lot of money. And I think this being frugal, that's the way I was brought up. But also, I never felt the need to have uh, flashy things. I was, I was trying to give examples, but I can't even think of, uh, can't even think of much. And I, I actually own very few items of clothing. If you look at my bedroom, I, 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 I don't know if you ever got to this part. Uh, Anthony Diorio, I saw his closet once, and he, uh, he has a walk. I'm on chapter closet. thirty, so I haven't, I haven't gotten there yet. Uh, this isn't a spoiler to the plot. So he, uh, he, he has a, a big closet, but he occupies like a, maybe a small quarter of it. And he has like a, maybe like five, seven shirts and they're all the same, like white or black t-shirts and pants that are all the same. And everything else was his girlfriend's clothes. And so <laughs> my bedroom's kind of like that as well. And I, I actually feel like owning fewer things, it's a, it's a form of, it's a form of freedom. Yep. I agree. And it's, I think so, so many times the things you own or acquire end up owning you, right? If you're not willing to get rid of something, that thing owns you. Um, I heard someone say that once and it held really true. And I'm kind of the same. Like I, um, I worked, I founded and worked for a health network for a long time. And basically every piece of clothing I wore was clothing. I create, I, I found just the shit that fit best slap the health network logo on it. That's all I wore. I didn't have to think of what I wore every day. It was just like, what's clean. That's my only decision. Um, and I'm kind of going through a transition right now where I'm getting some Bitcoin swag made. That's that actually fits well and is going to last not just something that like a trend-based thing, but like subtle Bitcoin branding, just the Bitcoin logo and, um, see if there's a market. Cause I tried to look for someone. I couldn't find any, but I'm the same where it's like, it's very liberating to shed belongings, I find. Like I have a ritual where every week I have to get rid of at least a couple things. They can be very small. Sometimes they're very small. Sometimes they're big, but I think it's a really, um, it makes you nimble, right? It allows you to, it, it expands your option horizon. If you don't own a house, you're not limited to one place geographically. If you don't own a lot of stuff, once again, if you want to get up and go somewhere, you don't really have a whole lot of shit to pack up and take with you. And I think it's um, very liberating and it seems to be a uh, a mindset shared by a lot of people in, uh, in Bitcoin. Although I think I just self-select to hang around people who don't signal 
which don't buy the expensive shit, which don't like have the fancy things they like to show off. So maybe that's just me harboring my, uh, my environment. Um, in terms of culture, like one of the things I'm really curious about to ask people um, is Bitcoin culture. And I think, you know, Bitcoin's a monetary network, but it's also a community and all communities inevitably develop a culture, uh, whether on purpose or not. So if someone says, what is Bitcoin culture? Uh, what's your, what's your answer to that from your perspective? Uh, well, I, I think if you want to talk about Bitcoin specifically, um, I think there's a, there's a certain individualism in there and a certain uh, enterprisingness. Uh, but I, I think that's also shared among the wider crypto community. And so, well, I think you might have read this when I was going to North Korea uh, when I yes. met everyone there. And before we went, first thing someone said to me, so none of us knew each other. First thing he said, what made you decide to do this, this crazy thing of going to North Korea? And, and I said, well, what about you? And, and then we all laughed. And I think in an unspoken way, we all knew that we shared something. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Just by being there, you shared something, even if you couldn't explain it, Yeah, <laughs> a sense of craziness or a sense of curiosity, maybe. Um, and it seems like to me, a lot of the values of the protocol have been sort of like hard coded in the community culture of Bitcoin to some extent, obviously there's like, um, it's a broad spectrum, but, um, I find that really, I find it really powerful to meet value driven people who actually like know their values and align where they spend their time and their money with their values. And I think that's pretty rare these days to see mostly because I think people are just trying to not drown, right? Like trying to I think there's a lot of stuff going on that keeps us just in treading water mode, survival mode. So there's no time to think about your values. There's no time to think about, you know, health, for example. And I think that, I think Bitcoin's going to change the world. I think crypto is often where people end up getting sidetracked to, and I have nothing against crypto. Uh, I just have a hard time dealing with the, when people conflate crypto and Bitcoin, because I think there has to be a hard line drawn to say like Bitcoin is sound money. Crypto is like investing in startups and there's a lot of sketchy ones. So you have to be really well informed to do this properly. Um, what's your take on this kind of recent thing that I'm seeing a lot about Bitcoin max toxic maximalism, because I have my own perspective, but I would love to hear what you have to say about this. Uh, is it bad for Bitcoin? Is it good for Bitcoin? Is it something that's even on your radar? Like what are your thoughts about the whole label of toxic Bitcoin maximalism. Yeah, this is something I've, uh, I'm, I have a great interest in. And I, I think it's so fascinating that I think this whole space has blossomed in this way, that there are various different camps and uh, Bitcoin maximalists, they, they feel very strongly about, uh, about, about their views. But I would also think ultimately, uh, uh, I, I have this story. Uh, I, I read this post on, on Reddit. And there was a guy who said, I have a friend who long ago bought uh, one Bitcoin, he told me. And so he has a whole Bitcoin. And, and uh, I was talking about him. I was trying to help him remember his password and everything. And after a while, he said, oh, yeah, the Bitcoin that I bought was Ethereum. And I, I think to, to the wider public, um, yeah. they don't see the, the, the line Bitcoin maximalists and other people. And when they see Bitcoin maximalists, they think the whole crypto cap. Yeah. 
I think there's a lot of misperceptions in the public. And, uh, you know, I run like an informal meetup. Um, sometimes we do it weekly, but it depends on interest and it's Bitcoin only. And people kind of email and they say, you know, like, uh, what cryptos are you going to talk about? I'm like, no, 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 this is a Bitcoin meetup. This is not a crypto meetup. Um, and people, they're, they're kind of like, oh, well, that's, that's weird that you only like one, like why? And they just don't understand. And, and, um, like I said, I don't, I think from what I've talked, from what I've heard about from a lot of Bitcoiners, it's almost like the deeper you go into Bitcoin, the more you understand what this is and the importance of this, the more you see it as almost a duty to warn people of the noise in the system um, that seems to just pull people into, into its orbit, like very easily. Right. And it's a, it's a messy on-ramp if you want to get into this space. And most people don't just because it's such a messy on-ramp and so can be so complex from the outside. But when you go there, there's basically an on-ramp with a thousand lanes. And unless you have an understanding of how Bitcoin is different than this crypto space, uh, there's not really any way of understanding which lane you should take. And so often people just take the lane that's getting the most attention right now, uh, which often isn't the most important one. Um, and yeah, I just find it's funny how people who are vehement proponents of sound money get labeled as maximalists. And then they just adopt that as like, yeah, I am. Fuck that. I am. Call me that. I'm taking that label. I'm going to make it my own. And it just constantly gets warped. And there's so much distraction, I think, with this whole notion of, is it good? Is it bad? It's like, well, we should probably all be understanding of each other and be curious. But we should also speak our values concretely in that if we know that there's like, if we know there's a coin that's a scam and everyone's talking about it and everyone's asking about going into it, you should probably say, that's a fucking scam. Stay away. Bitcoin is the signal. That's the noise. And I think that gets labeled often as like, oh, you're not open-minded or, or you're not this and that. It's like, actually, I am open-minded. I just understand the fact that Bitcoin is the important one. And it's the one that if you want to actually be a good steward of your own wealth, it's probably the only one that matters for now. Um, out of curiosity, are you still invested and involved with Bitcoin? And do you, um, do you play with any of the other projects in the space right now? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I, I would say that when, when I was actually more actively managing my portfolio, I was like probably 90% in Bitcoin, but the, this, this has been a crazy year. I haven't touched any of it. And hmm. BNB, which I, the, the Binance coin, which I held a significant amount uh, back then, it maybe was 5% of my holdings. It's grown quite a bit. It's like maybe 40%. Wow. But I'm, uh, I might probably recalibrate and go back to like 80 to 90% Bitcoin. I, uh, I probably hold some Ether. Um, but I think mostly I think 90%, maybe more than 90% of all the other coins out there, they're all shit coins. Yeah. Yeah. And even the term shit coin, people get so triggered by that. It's like, fuck off. It is most of them are shit coins. Let's just call, call a spade a spade. And I love that. Yeah. I mean, when you get to a certain point and you have a level of wealth in Bitcoin, um, that is almost what gives you permission to now experiment and maybe research other things, other projects. And the funny thing about Bitcoin is that people who uh, committed a good amount of their wealth to Bitcoin early, all of a sudden have a, a large amount of wealth, but they also have time. They no longer have to work on things that they don't want to. And so it gives you some optionality in terms of like actually looking into and understanding some of the other projects. Um, and, you know, I, 
I might not go into a casino and be willing to, to like gamble a lot of my money, but I have no prejudice against people that do. I just don't want them to think they're going into a casino and gambling and think that it's a sure thing because they're deceiving themselves. And that's kind of my mission when I, when people ask me about this stuff, it's like, I just want them to know what they're getting into. I don't want to tell them what to do, but I think it's gotten more and more important for me to make sure it's almost like protecting the people I care about by making sure they have that distinction of Bitcoin, everything else, strong line. This is what Bitcoin is. This is what everything else is. Um, and yeah, I think, uh, what, what are people asking you most about these days? Like, do you still have friends and family that come up to you for the first time and say, Hey, what about this? What do you think about this? If so, what are they asking you about these days? You know, today is October 29th, 2021. What are you, what are you getting? What are you getting questions about? Well, uh, there is this question that I got asked uh, more than once. Um, what do you think is going to be the next Bitcoin? Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> Bitcoin is the next Bitcoin. Yeah, and it's just like a really long answer you have to you, you have to give uh, to yeah. try to, I guess, break that that that, that fundamental premise that uh, of that question. Yeah, yeah, and I, um, you know, one of the things we're doing at the Stoa is. Uh, School of Coin, which is 21 episodes uh, that I wanted to record that essentially I could direct my mom to, to, to give her a, a, like a good smooth on-ramp that wasn't overwhelming, that actually made sense. So 21 episodes. And then we have these learning protocols, like level one, two, three, four, five. Each one has a book, a podcast, a video, and an article. And I'm just trying to create like these openly available on-ramps that are so that I don't have to actually explain anything to people, right? I, I, I'm, my mission these days is to, to say as little as possible and guide as much as possible because number one, I only talk to people who are actually curious about Bitcoin. I don't give a shit about changing anyone's mind or convincing anyone. And that was a big change and I, that preserved a lot of my energy. Um, but number two, it's like, well, there's responsibility built into this. If you want to be part of this, you have to take responsibility, which means you actually have to pay attention. You have to allocate time to understanding this. There's really no other way of doing this right than that. And lately I've just been directing people to learn about money because the illiteracy with money is what contributes to the lack of even a template to understand Bitcoin or understand how Bitcoin is money. So yeah, it's very interesting how, um, how the interest sort of ebbs and flows at my family dinners with the price of Bitcoin. And, you know, I was the annoying family member that every single dinner for like five years, not every single dinner, but a lot of them, I was like, all right, so Bitcoin, who has some and why don't you have any? <laughs> and eventually they got tired of it, but now I think they're kind of thankful um, for it. And you also have another book. Um, and I wanted to just ask you briefly about this, I think is something about uh, like a lens through the pandemic. I can't remember the actual title, but can you tell us a little bit about that one and sort of what was the impetus um, for writing that? Mm -hmm. So that was a total accident. So my, okay. my, my current book, it was supposed to come out last year. And, but last year at the beginning of it, like a, right before the pandemic started, like literally a day before the first city was, uh, was quarantined Wuhan, um, I was traveling to see my grandfather who was dying at the time. And I just landed in a, just a totally different world in China. And uh, yeah, ended up writing a book about that. And that book was out last year. So it, it pushed this book to this year. Gotcha. Yeah, cool. I'll have to check that out. Because I think your, you know, your, your interview in terms of the first book I read from you uh, was like resounding in that your perspective is uh, well-written and also like fun to read. I don't, 
I read in a weird way. I read in 20 minute chunks throughout the day. And it's funny because since I started reading your PDF, I've kind of looked at my, I take a record of how many, now it's 21 minutes, just, just cause why not? Um, and I kind of like put a little line down every 21 minute batch that I read. And I've read a lot more this week than I usually do. And it's been all your book. So I might have to dig into your other one after, because I think hearing people who are like reading from people who are good at writing and whose style resonates and aligns with sort of the, like what you like to, to consume, I guess. Um, it's, I find it hard to find these days. There's a lot of like very technical people that I like to read about, but none of them really have a, an, um, like a more free flowing, easygoing style from first perspective. And I think it's, um, quite refreshing. So I'd like to ask people some kind of rapid fire questions at the end. Uh, your answer can be as long or as short as you want. Um, and yeah, curious to hear your thoughts. So first one is what is a Bitcoiner? Uh, what does being a Bitcoiner mean to you? And do you have like a, an internal definition of what you use to consider someone a Bitcoiner? That's a, that's, that's an interesting question because I think you would draw a line between someone who I guess is uh, more immersed in this space versus someone who just dropped a few dollars into it. Um, I, I, I think to be considered a Bitcoiner, you would have to be. Hmm. I think you 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 would have to not ask this question: What is going to be the next Bitcoin? Like, <laughs> that's, if, a, that's if, a good criteria. If, if you understand that 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 is not a question that should be asked, I think that makes you a Bitcoiner. Nice, that's a good answer. And yeah, I I want to ask that to everyone I interview because it's very subjective, but there are common threads, right? Some people say you have to be someone who talks about Bitcoin to others or who runs a node or who has X amount of their wealth in it. And I, I don't think there's one answer that fits, but I want to try and zone in on the, uh, the common threads that I hear from people. So thanks for your take on that. Uh, what's your favorite mobile wallet to use if you use one these days? Uh -huh. Yeah, I, uh, I don't really use one actually, but I, uh, mobile wallet, I, I used to use bread and uh, I, okay. yeah. Yeah, I use Sam red too. I, I samurai. Samurai, yeah. And uh, oh, wallet of, wallet of Satoshi for Lightning because uh, yeah, on my iPhone, it's not new enough to have Strike apparently. Interesting. Yeah, I, I don't think Strike's in Canada yet. Um, oh, maybe, maybe that's why. Yeah, I've looked into it and they're not, I think they're going, they started in the US, they did El Salvador and now they're, I think Europe is on the roadmap before Canada and Australia. So I think that's the kind of holdup. Obviously, they have a lot of regulatory bullshit to go through. Um, but yeah, okay, Wallet of Satoshi, I haven't used. I like to use all wallets just to see like what is the UI like and what is the difference in terms of, because we're going to do an episode on wallets and I figure I should probably know the landscape of wallets, what features, what trade-offs, all that kind of stuff. So um, in terms of uh, Bitcoin, like do you work with any Bitcoin companies? One of the companies I work with, which has I have no... Uh, partnership relationship with. I simply use them because they offer good services. Ledin, which is based out of Toronto, which offers Bitcoin-backed loans. Is there any Bitcoin company that you really like working with? Mm -hmm. So I I don't receive any money from any Bitcoin companies, but there is one company I want to highlight because um, I have been asked this question a lot. Uh, can your book be bought with Bitcoin? And mm -hmm. I went through a lot of trouble to try to make that happen. And uh, QuickBit in Regina, it sells Bitcoin ATMs as a physical store and it stocked my book and was willing to offer 
to let people buy it with Bitcoin. And I made my publisher link to it. So it's like official. Yes. And yeah, I want to highlight that. Okay. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Good, good, good highlight. And you know, this apparel that we're going to make, we're going to call it uh, Bitcoin library. Um, no other brand. It's literally just all about Bitcoiners and having good quality stuff, but I'm kind of going through the process of figuring out how can I sell this for Bitcoin? Because mostly it's only going to be Bitcoiners that buy this stuff. And it turns out it's kind of, you know, I've run a Shopify store for like five years. So I'm familiar with the process of like payment logistics, send it out, all that kind of stuff. And even like installing a BTC pay server or some way for people to pay in Bitcoin, the, the harder part or the, the part where more friction is connecting that with the fulfillment side so that when someone pays, they give some sort of, um, they give all their information in terms of how we get the product to them. So I can, I can see the difficulty um, firsthand right now. And what we're going to try and do is price. We're going to peg it to our Canadian fiat cost per batch, but we're going to price it in sats. So over time, uh, if you're paying in sats, it'll get cheaper. If you're paying Canadian dollars, and the supply chain issues continue to happen. Each batch is going to be priced based on our cost times 1.5. And so trying to be transparent, but also making it very obvious where it's like, well, this is the cost in sats. This is the cost in dollars. It's probably going to go up over time in dollars and down over time in sats. And hopefully that, you know, I'm trying to undergo the mental shift right now of thinking of things in, in Bitcoin, thinking of revenue or prices in Bitcoin. It's really hard because it's so, it still um, varies quite a bit, but, but yeah, that's a interesting, um, it is hard to get people to pay in Bitcoin and be able to ship them something. But I think it's cool to know that that company is in Canada. So I might have to check that out. Uh -huh. um, what's your learning practice like these days? Are you still actively learning? About, I mean, Bitcoin is this thing that's constantly evolving and hard to keep up with. Are you, do you still have a learning practice? Uh, if so, is it formal and, and structured? And which medium do you prefer to learn from? Uh -huh. uh, it really depends on how you define learning, I think. But I... Uh... I, I read CoinDesk in the mornings and I read uh, the block in the, in the afternoons and I am under no obligation here to shill my, uh, my employer, but uh, f financial posts, I, there's a newsletter every Thursday and it, it's about finance in general, but it's a heavy crypto focus and I, I, I read that as well. Okay. Um, yeah, that's, uh, that's a bit, oh, Decrypt as well. I have a newsletter. So. Okay, cool. Um... How do people, you said block, is that just like B-L-O-C-K? Is that an online um, uh, like website or what is that? Uh, yeah, B-L-O-C-K, the block. So the it's, block. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's quite a good news source. Uh, it's, it's marketed as being for investors. And I think it reports on market moving things and you know what gives value to the investor. Okay, very cool. Uh, last rapid fire question. What excites you most about Bitcoin? Like right now, what excites you most and maybe what concerns you most about Bitcoin? It can be short, one-worder or whatever you want. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think definitely the, the fact that Latin American countries, are, I guess well, one right now, El Salvador is uh, adopting Bitcoin as legal tender. That very much excites me. And the, the fact that I think other Latin American countries are they are ripe grounds for that to happen as well, because you, I, I read that in Argentina, the government was going to freeze grocery prices for 90 days. And in what kind of a world would you need the government to step in to freeze grocery prices? Yeah. And Venezuela, people shaving off their gold flakes, the flakes of gold to, to pay for things. Um, but I, I would say what concerns me is also El Salvador. 
because mm. I, I think in the world of politics, easy come, easy go. The fact that Naib Bukele was able to usher in this Bitcoin law, what happens when he is gone? Those are really good points. And I share the same um, sort of like two-faced perspective on El Salvador, where it's the most exciting thing. It's also, you know, my fear is that uh, we might be too early for this, right? Like, I, I, I think it's amazing that it happened. Um, and it's like, I still, it seems a little bit surreal still. But if we are too early um, and it quote unquote fails in that it's not as smooth as I think most people think it's going to be, Will that be viewed uh, as like a token that the world takes and says, see, you can't do this. So don't try again. Uh, I really just think that if they don't get it, they're just going to try again and they'll get it eventually. And um, part of me, part of me actually wants to go there in the new early in the new year to actually see for myself what is happening, because it's so hard to know who to believe and what you read, whether it's true or not. You know, you have all this bullshit and FUD around this because there's a lot at stake, right? Like the powers that be do not want this to succeed. And so I kind of want to go there and do on the ground journalism and like literally talk to people and say, has this been good or bad for your life? And just to kind of see the landscape. So, um, I mean, regardless, I'm very excited to see what happens there. And I think, I mean, the game theory of this on a nation state level gets very, very interesting, right? Where the longer, if there are nation states um, accumulating Bitcoin, the longer you wait to do it as a nation state, the further behind you end up being. And all it takes is one medium-sized one to do it and be public. And then all shit goes haywire. So I don't know, like in terms of just speculation, um, do you think it will be a significant country or a significant uh, central bank or corporation that, that triggers um, what I think is just an, an inevitable fall of the dominoes uh, I just, I, I can't help but let my wine, mind wander and be like, who's going to do it first? Is it going to be like El Salvador is not viewed as something big enough to make a big enough ripple in the pond, but like an Apple, an Amazon, a Google, uh, a moderately sized central bank. Like, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, uh, I, I would preface my answer uh, with, with uh, the statement that I don't know as well. But if, uh, if I were to guess, I think, I, I think it will be a company, but we will see other countries adopt Bitcoin before, before that really big company does. But I think it'll be similar size countries as El Salvador that may not make that much of a ripple. Yeah. And that makes me happy because like those are the, those are the areas of the planet that need it most, right? Like those companies that get in before the big, and I, I agree, I think it's going to be one of the big North American companies. Like it's inevitable. How can you be Amazon, Google, or Facebook or, or Meta? Um, or Apple and not see this behemoth, especially Apple. Like they got, I don't know, hundreds of billions of dollars melting away. Um, at a certain point, the CFO of Apple is no longer holding up their fiduciary responsibility to actually preserve shareholder wealth by letting it melt and not getting in on the most attractive, especially because sailors already paved the way. Like it's the playbooks there in the open. Mm -hmm. So the fact that these small South American countries might be the ones to accumulate pre-giant company that sets off the big ripple uh, is awesome because those countries now have like this massive head start on the planet uh, to be able to, you know, acquire a level of living that um, is going to be shockingly advanced compared to like the, the slope that we typically see. So I'm really stoked. Ethan, thank you so much for taking the time today. Uh, I know you're a busy guy. You were saying you had like how many interviews with CBC in one day? 30? 13. 
but had pa- past tense that 13 but that's done that's insane man and what were these were these interviews like short hot takes or were they um or any of them like actual conversational interviews oh they're pretty short like te- 10 minutes each okay basically saying the same shit in every interview <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's like I don't know how people constantly watch mainstream news. It's so it's usually bad news and it's usually just the same shit with zero depth to it. Like I think um, the generation that watches <coughs> mainstream news is sort of transitioning out um, to say it as nicely as I can. Um, yeah. Thank you for joining us at the Stoa today. I look forward to uh, future conversations. If there's anything of interest in the Bitcoin space that you'd like to talk about, I'm always game for a good conversation. <coughs> Um, and to everyone listening, thank you for being here. If you enjoyed the conversation, you can support the project by heading to bitcoinstoa.com, sending some SaaS to the QR code. Uh, Ethan, where can people find out more about you, about your book, um, or just kind of follow what you're doing in terms of, uh, you know, giving people the coordinates to do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think you can quite easily look me up on, uh, on Google. Uh, my last name is uh, spelled L-O-U. And uh, yeah, there, there you go. Okay. Amazing. Stick around for a minute after I end recording, but everyone listening, thanks for being here and ciao for now.